And I'm joined in studio by our thought leader on this Thursday. Her name is Alicia Ndlovu. Uh, she is uh, out at the University of Cape Town. And uh, she joins us here at our Seapoint Studios. Alicia, good evening and welcome. Good evening, Ayabonga. I hear you clearly now. <laughs> I hear you clearly. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you, are, you live here in the fairest of the Cape. Um, yes. And uh, after having spent many years in Johannesburg, and uh, yeah, you are thought leader on this Thursday. You work largely in international relations and political economy. Um, yes. But before we get into all of the interesting research work and yeah, how you're holding miners and everybody in the mining value chain to account, who is Alicia Andlovu, your background, and of course your journey into the world of academia mm. and uh, your many research interests? Um, so, you know, I was born in Limpopo. Um, small town called Zanin, and that's where I grew up for the first seven years of my life. So I did primary, um, no, first grade and second grade um, at a school um, in a village, and then I moved to Johannesburg for for the rest of my primary and high school. And then after that, obviously, I went to Vets University where I met you. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That great university on the hill there. Yes. <laughs> And and of course, then at Wits, I mean, you you go, you don't just stay for undergrad, which is often the big challenge that a lot of people fa- are faced with. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, there's a lot of pressure on people to after you've finished your first qualification to go and look for a job. Um, you know, and in many cases, especially for those who are the first in their families to go and get a qualification, there's pressure to say, go and look for a job. Mm-hmm. Let's make, and then of course, later on, you can study when mm-hmm. you work or whatever. You stayed in the system, um, and of course, you, you managed to work at some stage uh, while you were still studying. Talk to me about how that experience unfolded, because we also have a massive challenge of how do we, mean, how do we get young African women into academia um, as part and parcel of our work of you know transforming and decolonizing higher education. Mm. Yeah, I, my, my goal actually when I entered VITS for my first degree was to just study for three years. Sure. And I needed to make sure that I don't fail because I didn't have funding. Mm. Um, so in my first year, I remember my parents taking out a loan. And then the second year, I was on Nesfas, which okay. was a huge relief. So in my third year, like many other students, I began to apply for jobs. Um, McKenzie, consulting. The I think the life, the game changer for me was I interviewed with the National Treasury um, mm. when I was in my third year, just just when I finished. Actually, I just I had started yeah at the end of my third year. And I went to that interview, first round of interviews, proceeded to the second round, and there was someone in my panel who I th- I don't remember their name, but I think they what changed What were you interviewing at, for at the Treasury, by the way? It was an internship program at the National Treasury. Okay. okay. Um, so, yeah, internship. And... During my interview, I just remember he asked me, how old are you? And then I said, I think I was 19 or 20. And he said to me, wow, um, look, I think you are great. But I think you have a bright future ahead of you if you just went back and continued studying. Um, and I thought to myself, he's not serious. Were you devastated when he said I that? was. I went home and I cried. <laughs> Because I really wanted to work, you know. Mm. Um, I I cried and then I had to have plan B um, and, you know, go back and do my honors. So that's how I I went back. 
uh, but I had conditions. Mm. So after completing my honors, I thought about whether I would do a master's degree, but I set some conditions and I said to myself, there is no way. Um, of course, for my honors, I had a, you know, a scholarship now from VITS, but for my master's, I said, I need more than this. Um, the only way I would do my master's is if I had good funding and could also you know, have some form of internship. And that's when I interned at the South African um, FIRE. Institute for International Affairs. So Institute of International Affairs, correct. <laughs> yes. Jan Smart's house, yes. Yeah. Jan Smart's house. So I did my master's while I was working at SIA. Um, I had funding um, from the Conrad Adenauer Stiftung, CAS, and SIA was also giving me a stipend every month. So that's when at least school became mm. more fun mm. and not just stressful. That experience at SIA, I mean, look, SIA is one of the preeminent um, think tanks insofar as foreign policy, geopolitics, international relations is concerned. And of course, we can have a discussion about their own bent and, you know, outlook and all of that stuff. Uh, but really, traditionally, very much, um, you know, a, a preeminent institution there. Mm. Um, how important was that, I guess, in, in what you ended up later doing and I guess even in some of your doctoral work? Mm. Saya, I think, firstly, before the content itself, um, shaped me in terms of discipline. So remember, I had to work from 8 to like 4 p.m. But at the same time, I had my master's degree. Mm. So I would be excused twice a week to go to class. And so my life was full-time student, but full also full-time intern, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that experience was tough. I had to work during the day and then at night sleep at midnight, 2 a.m., trying to catch up. Mm. But that is, I did my best in that year. And I tell a lot of people that the reason why I did so well, even if I had a, I had a, I had a lot more to do, is because I didn't have the financial stress. Sure. That was a big, big deal. Yeah, yeah. So, I think many students and many people can relate to that. The yeah. fact that you know at least your financial obligations to the institution um, for your tuition and all of your costs related to your study are covered, gives you a certain type of peace of mind yeah. and a certain attitude, I guess, to your work. Right? Yeah, uh, an attitude of I have to give it my all. Um, I have no excuse. And know. I can also have fun. I can think about enjoying it. And I can have fun. It. I also have money to go out on weekends. If I'm stressed, I can get a massage. You know, it's important. <laughs> <laughs> I can do my hair. I look good. You know? <laughs> I mean, that whole thing. I mean, I worked it's at true. Saya. Hey? Yeah. I was working with diplomats. I had to do mic roving. I had to look the part. So <laughs> You had to be suited up. I then, had to huh? be suited up. You know, we used to dress formally. Um, so that was really nice. And okay. it just gave me a sense of pride, you know, in my work. And, and I really flourished. I want to pause there for a second, Alicia, and uh, take a quick spot break. When we come back, I want us to talk about the extractive sector, uh, your interest in that space. And of course, uh, I guess, firstly, before we even go there, like what you make of uh, events like the mining in Daba in the biggest scheme of accountability of different ecosystem actors in the world of uh, mining, extractives, and other non-renewable forms of uh, whatever we use every single day. And uh, we'll come back to that after this brief break. The voice you're about to hear is the voice of Chagalaga Norris. Yeah, sure. And he's so spicy. How spicy are you, Chuck? So spicy that I start chats with people just so I can blue tick them. Damn. 
that spicy. Introducing the new Savannah Chill Chili, crisp and dry with hints of chili and ginger. It's dry, but you can drink it. Not for persons under 18. Can you hear that? The Engine Wimpy Eat Win Ride competition is here and you could win a brand new Polo Vivo. Remember, you gotta eat before you can win and win before you can ride. Enter the competition today and stand a chance of winning one of four Polo Vivos by spending 100 Rand or more at any Engine Wimpy. Valid until end May. T's and C's apply. Engine Wimpy. Love the journey. Thought Leader Thursday. Thought Leader Thursday on Metro FM Talk. Yeah, 22 minutes it is. Uh, after 8 p.m., you tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. And uh, it's our Thought Leader Thursday segment. Our Thought Leader on this Thursday is Alicia Ndlovu. And uh, we are speaking to her in our studios here in Seapoint, out in Cape Town. And uh, we've been here for much of the week uh, at the mining in Daba. And a lot of our discussions with Alicia tonight uh, will also focus on the mining sector. And, of course, all of the contradictions. Uh, it is certainly much like much else in our society a bundle of its own contradictions. And uh, maybe just before we get into your work, Alicia, your thoughts and reflections on platforms like the mining in Daba, they seem mm-hmm. to bring many ecosystems together. Mm-hmm. We've also had some reflections from the alternative mining in Daba. Um, and just, yeah, what you make of that, and then we'll come back to mm-hmm. institutions and uh, issues around the mining sector. Right. You know, uh, as a someone who's been working, um, you know, around issues of governing natural resources, I think this, the weirdest thing is the fact that I've never really afforded to attend the main... The mining, mining in, Daba. in Daba. Yes. How much is it? It's one thousand. It's free. about 1,900 pounds for individual uh, registration. How and much? I think for students, it's 250 pounds. <laughs> Say that again. For students, it's 250 pounds. Yes. Okay. And then a for... Discount. And then I think individual re- registration is somewhere about 1,008 or 1,900 pounds. No ways. So sorry, I'm just quickly getting the, my calculator <laughs> out. Uh, so pound uh, to the rand today. Uh, so what's that? Um, that's nearly twenty rand. So you said how much is it for students? Two hundred and fifty pounds. So that's like the last time I checked. That's like what five thousand rand yeah. to attend. And then if you're a normal somebody, academic, that type of thing. Yeah, you just would not not afford. Twenty thousand. The conversations are important, but as researchers, we cannot even access that space. So why don't you get media passes? Am, am I in media? Uh, next time, next time, you'll just say you're with UCT Radio or something. Uh, like. Maybe <laughs> I should try. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's the first thing. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, issue of sure. access has Which is a very problematic issue. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Um, but otherwise, I think yeah, the conversations are important, so make them accessible, right? Mm. Um, and the alternative mining in Daba, what do you make of that? I, I think it's also as important. In fact, even this 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 year, I saw that they were invited. Um, to have a conversation so both mining endeavors were in the same room yes I saw um, that yeah, having yeah, a conversation yeah. so that's 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 very important but at the same time I mean it's a I don't know how to describe the space I need, I think we need to understand what what the mining endeavor is for right in investment and you can tell that if I go into that space as an academic my priority is to attend well talks that are relevant mostly for my research. Um, but I guess for a lot of other stakeholders, you know, before before they even get there, you know, they've already made contacts and people know what they want out of this. So the interesting thing for me is I've also um, made connections with people who are not necessarily in academia. So it's been mm. very interesting to see 
you know, deal making, <laughs> you know, the kinds of meetings that people have after hours. You know, I'm just there during the day, um, five o'clock, I'm going home, and yeah, people yeah. are having gala dinners and. Which you is know, where the real stuff where, happens, exactly, by the way. Mm. And, and that's when you see that okay, this is this is some serious business. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been very interesting for me. I, I was also uh, Ayabonga um, part of it because this year specifically because I had sent in a proposal mm. for their in, inaugural um, um, research and innovation battlefield. And I was a finalist for that. So that's how I ended up going. That's how I got my free ticket. I, I worked really hard for it. <laughs> you had to come like with an entire paper. An entire innovation. I had to come up with um, an idea for how we can achieve um, sustainable post-mining wow. economies. And that's how I made it through. Talk to me about that work, sustainable post-mining futures, from... I guess the analytical lens that you use, uh, which is that of institutions, political right. institutions, um, and I would even say within the ambit, I guess, of broader institutional political economy and, and, and that type of thing. Um, talk to us about that. Yeah, when I was speaking there, you know, I, I made the argument that um, there are many ways to achieve sustainable post-binding economies, and one of them could be institutions. Because, you know, scholars such as Asimoglu have made arguments that, you know, the diversity that we see in the world, even for the last 250 years, that economic diversity is due to differences in the types of institutions that countries have. Mm. Um, but I think what's really important, especially within this literature of natural resources or the resource curse, is that there is broad agreement, you know, that institutions do matter. But we don't really... Um, agree so much mm. in terms of which institutions. And here, when we talk about institutions, right, we're not talking about buildings or no, schools, no, no. or we talk about the rules, rules of, of the, the game, game, basically. Yeah, yeah that yeah, shape okay. interactions. Sure, sure. So, we still need to do a lot of research about which institutions, you know, how do they actually work, mm. under what political conditions are they formed, um, because they're different. Um, institutions, you know, that govern natural resources. Um, some countries have been more innovative, like uh, more than others, such as Ghana. They have the Public Interest and Accountability Committee. Mm. Um, when they discovered oil, and that's to make sure that there's accountability and transparency within the petroleum um, space. But obviously, Ghana doesn't only um, have oil, right? They've got mm. gold and other minerals as well. So the question is, so if you've created that institution... Why don't you extend it? Yeah, yeah mm. and you, it reports to parliament. Mm. Why aren't you extending it to other resources? I found it interesting, you know, we had a discussion earlier on this week with uh, the Joint Secretary for Mines in India. And she was talking about like royalties as an institution, right? So right. you mine the stuff, you make the money, but a certain portion has to go to the tax man, right? Yes. Uh, in royalties. And she was saying that, that their royalties, yes, of course, they go to the central government, mm -hmm. but a portion of those royalties have to go to the communities alongside the mine. Mm -hmm. How important is that for these post-mining futures where we know in South Africa, some mines don't even do rehabilitation mm. of where they've mined once the ore bodies are gone or not economic to mine? It is extremely important, um, Ayabonga, because if you think about mining towns, um, a lot of economic activity there is most likely linked to mining. Because when you say mining uh, mining communities, sometimes we tend to think that it's just the people, they, they were found there, mm. right? We forget that sometimes there's also migration, right? People move towards those communities looking for work. So when the mine shuts down, you know, 
what really happens. That's why you, you end up with ghost towns. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, go to Orkney, go to Carltonville. Go back to wherever they come from. Mm. And we need to, for me, I think the issue that I have is that we can't be thinking about this after the mine is closed. In fact, we can't be thinking, we need to be thinking about what the revenue is doing. What are we doing the revenue now? Because we know these things are pale. Yeah, mm. we know. Uh, in, in fact, I always make the argument that uh, reliance on natural resources, this is, there's a paradox of the sustaining the unsustainable. Natural resources by their nature, non-renewable natural yeah, yeah. resources, yeah, yeah. are inherently unsustainable in that once depleted, they are gone. So we need to actually think about ways to use the short-term proceeds from natural resources to initiate long-term development processes. So it's not even an issue of, ah, we're going to close what's going to happen. No, right now we are getting proceeds. Mm. What are we doing to make sure that we invest in other productive assets? That then when the mine is closed... Can transition people, yeah, sure. Proceed. And that is where we are having a problem right now. What do you make then of... I mean, I heard ESCOM the other day was saying there are certain you know, assets. And I, I mean, as, link, ESCOM is linked because a big part of the fuel requirements comes from the mining of coal. And they were saying that I think one uh, uh, plant had closed and of course subsequently that had implications on the coal mines in that area. And their strategy was to transition that into now a solar operation with a, a, a farm doing some crop mining. Very nice demo type project. But I don't see any of that stuff around the mine dumps. I don't see it around parts of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mpumalanga that are said to be ghost towns or parts of uh, the western parts of Gauteng, you know, traditional gold mining country that are no longer, you know, mineable or the ore bodies are too deep. Do we have any examples of success? Because aside from the ESCOM thing, I haven't heard of anybody saying this used to be a mine and now it is this something entirely different. Yeah. And we have a lot of... Uh Mines that are closed. I have a I have a colleague of mine, Musangalo, um, who's at the Nelson Mandela School of Governance, who's actually working on you know platinum belt especially, mm. and he was showing me this map of the key provinces, mining provinces in South Africa, and he showed me the number of mines that are still open and the ones that are still closed. We have a an, a lot that are closed and a lot that are still open, mm. a lot, and and I think this is an important. Um, conversation because this is a resource-rich country and although conversations are now moving towards you know the transition right we are now transitioning towards renewable energy but most of the inputs into renewable energy will come from mining yeah so we have to mine nickel cobalt yes. copper you know lithium for batteries and all of that so we, we are continuing but we haven't solved that problem of using the proceeds Talk to me about, you know, if you know, I like the comment you make, right, around using the proceeds that are current for yeah. future proofing, yes. right, communities in those areas. But then we also have the challenge of his social relations, right? Mining has institutions like migrant labor. Mining has institutions that are patriarchal in nature, underground, above surface. Mining has institutions of enrichment and institutions of impoverishment, depending on where you're sitting. So the institutions of enrichment are nice share options, nice pay, all of that. And then for workers, the institutions of impoverishment are, you know, live out bonuses in some cases, uh, the type of life that is seen in informal settlements alongside these operations. Do we ever talk about that? It's complicated. So it depends, obviously, what your interests are, mm. right, within the space. Um, and I think you rightly put it that this is a big, big sector. Um, 
And so depending on where you come from, obviously you have an area of interest. But I think the governance of that space is just as complex, right? And But many of the decisions that are made are also centralized within national authority. Mm. And I think when you speak of these institutions, patriarchal institutions, women underground, but also living in these communities and whatever that is happening near these mines, we also need to ask ourselves questions in terms of, you know, how does accountability express itself at the local level? Because I think in many situations, we're constantly obviously looking at government, but we're thinking national government, mm-hmm. right? Um, but remember, mine, mining companies have to strike deals with the state. Um, you know, they, have they also to need adhere, licenses yeah, from they, the state. They have yeah. to adhere to, to labor relations, etc., mm. or labor laws. But at the same time, they also have to have that social license to operate, Mine, yeah. right? So they need to strike deals with communities. And I think that is the challenge. It's been really challenging because why? We've got institutions even at the local level. I mean, I'm sure you know that, um, you know, the state, I guess, owns, you know, the natural resources underneath are for all of us. Yes, yeah, yeah. But if perhaps in your village they discover, it's not like there were no institutions in your village before they discovered natural of resources. Of right? You yeah. had your own way of living. You yes. had your own institutions of accountability, mm. whether it be traditional leaders, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And I really think, for us, at least as scholars, uh, we don't have, by the way, we are operating on incomplete, uh, outdated data. There is no data set, empirical data on uh, specific to mining communities. So we can do census, mm. local censuses, 1996, uh, we can. We were talking about the cadastre earlier on, apparently still paper based. Yeah, 2011 census. uh, That's the problem. We don't even work with like current data. And if mining companies themselves have data, uh, they probably won't just like give it to you. Um, I mean, I was having a conversation there at the mining in Daba with someone who works for a very big mining company uh, who is the head of something important. Mm. I just won't mention the name, but uh, I asked a question about, you know, what kind of data do you have and are you able to share it? Um, And he said, yeah, we know our stakeholders very well. We have the data, but, you know, because of the poppy laws. But I thought that just came out like last year or something. Because of poppy what? I mean, mean, like really now. And I I asked a question and I said, uh, how do you collect it? And he said, oh, we approach consulting firms. And I was like, okay. Um, so as an, a researcher, can I have access? No, of course not, because it's highly protected. He even said something about my colleagues in Europe. But are they not ob- should, <laughs> ideally, should they not be obliged to have a sharing agreement with a Mintech, for instance? right? Because Mintech is a state-owned institution as part of our system of innovation or even CSIR, let alone Askafigugu universities. Um, you know, I mean, surely there should be some framework like that in place for that. Perhaps there is. I have to just do further research in terms of how to get there. But as academics, you know how we do. We we apply for grants and we do the research ourselves. I mean, mm. we don't mind going to the field and actually speaking to members of the community um, and, and doing, you know, that kind of qualitative data collection. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was interesting for me to note that, you know, you hire consulting firms and, you know, you get the data and, and maybe that is also very protected. He mentioned something about permission would have to come from somewhere in Europe. It just sounded very complicated. Um, but I was asking myself, why is uh, data on South African communities in Europe, you know, needing permission from Europe? I didn't get it, but mining your minerals. Yeah, right, but by that's the way. that's the reality. Yeah. Um, we need to 
really work on updated information because right now we are coming up with innovations. For me, it was very interesting at the mining in Daba because I was part of the people who were pitching ideas for how to build these sustainable post-mining economies. But actually, none of us, we were all coming up with solutions, right? And for me, I said, hold on, we haven't even asked them what they would like to see. We haven't even, we don't... Who's they? Who, yeah. The community. If you say communities, mm, mm. How, do we, how do you bring up solutions when you don't even have information about what communities want? They tell you that that's the best solution for them. Mm. They tell you they want a generator. Like, who, who told you? You know, so these are some of the problematic things that where we... Top-down innovation yeah, also. Yeah, 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 where yeah, we, yeah. So that's exactly it. Where we find ourselves is that we are constantly sitting and thinking about what can we do so that, you know, they are not fearful of mines closing. But I, I, I argue that, no, that's not how it goes. You go and you ask. Mm. First of all, before the mine is closed, what would you like the revenue to be used for? What mm. would you like to see mm. in your communities? And should you not see that benefit that you want, who should you hold accountable? Alicia, I mean, the point, the issues you're raising are so insightful and, and, I often wonder whether we can solve them just in South Africa without a proper continental scope, right? Great call. And I'm interested in hearing your thoughts because we were talking about the exact same thing you were raising earlier. All of these new innovations, be it smartphones, you know, be it all of them are reliant, nickel, cobalt, coltan, copper, all of those things, mm. right? Are mined across geography, right? So Zambia and DRC, in the case of cobalt and coltan and copper, are big sources of that, right? Platinum group metals, South Africa and Zimbabwe. In your work, just briefly, have you seen any, I guess, cross-regional and, cro and uh, cross-continental type of collaboration in answering this question of accountability that you're raising? Yeah, I mean, at a regional level, there are many initiatives as well. Mm. I think what is challenging, Ayabonga, that we should say is that even though we like to talk about Sub-Saharan Africa or Africa, we know that there's huge diversity. Indeed. Not only in institutions, but mm. in, in, in development outcomes. And priorities. <laughs> right? yeah. And priorities. So the minute we get into the institutions, we have to, to acknowledge that diversity that exists. From, I'll use a, a very simple example. When I, I mentioned Ghana initially with the PIAC or the Public Interest and Accountability Committee, there was a lot of pressure uh, that, that, you know, that there was a lot of contestation, you know, before um, it was institutionalized. But the important thing to say also about Ghanaian politics, is right? They are very different from South African mm. politics, right? The competitive sure. two-party yes, system yes, yes, yeah. shapes incentives differently mm. because every political party in power knows that it has to kind of work hard because otherwise after eight years you are probably out. Mm. That kind of incentive might not exist necessarily in South Africa or in Namibia or in Zimbabwe or in Zim, in countries that you know have dominant party systems. Mm. So we have to think now. We say, okay, where does our party accountability come from? Maybe for us, it's intra-party mm. and not inter-party competition. Mm. That's just a basic, simple example of differences in sure, institutions. Sure, sure. Um, that shape incentives, government incentives, all the time. So we have to fight this battle of, you know, which institutions are going to shape the incentives so that And you could add so many other things to that. Tax so rates, uh, you could add, you know, uh, where the licenses are issued. Is it at plant level? Is it at company level? Alicia, it's so unfortunate we're going to have to pause here because we have run out of time. 
Um, I wish we had in South Africa a public system of education where people could walk into universities and attend Alicia's class. Um, Because I think this interface between political institutions and the economy is something we need to come back for. So you need to promise us you're going to come back for a part two. You're going to go to our studios when next you're in Joburg and we'll have this discussion. No problem. And thank you so much for having me. Awesome stuff. Alicia Nzovo from UCT.